Well, I wonder if someone asked you who you are, what would you say in response? How would you define yourself? Would you start by defining yourself as who you're not? In Oxford, that's what I do. I'm, I'm not an Oxford graduate, and I'm proud of it. But, but is, that, is that something you do? Do you define yourself by who you're not, or do you spend all your time trying to give the impression that you're actually even more impressive than you are? If someone said, who are you? Would your first thought be, I want to give the impression that there is someone more important than me? The reason I ask that question is because that is how John the Baptist thought. As people came to him and asked him who he was, his first thought was, I want these people to know that there is someone more important than me. This evening, as we look at this passage, we're going to learn a lot from John the Baptist. And then we're going to learn a lot about our Lord Jesus. But firstly, let's look at John the Baptist. In verse 19, John tells us this. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. You see, here's the thing. John the Baptist was a big deal in the first century. People were travelling from far and wide to come and see him. It's estimated by secular historians that thousands of people went out to be baptised by John. As people went out from Jerusalem to hear John, anticipation would have been at fever pitch. Imagine the conversations of weary Jewish travellers as they made their way to the Jordan to be baptised by John. Is this the one who God has promised? God has been silent for 400 years and suddenly he's speaking again. Imagine the conversations between people as they wondered whether this was going to be the end of Roman occupation in Palestine. Who are you, John? The Pharisees ask him. Excitement is at fever pitch. And John has these people in the palm of his hands. He could say whatever he wants. And notice what he does when they come and ask him who he is. Three times, he doesn't actually say who he is. He says, I am not. Notice the three things that he says. Verse 20 says, I am not. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Now that sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I was trying to work out what on earth was going on here. So it's the opposite of this. You know when you're uh, in a group of people and something controversial comes up, Brexit or veganism or complementarianism, whatever, whatever it is, and conversation is buzzing and you're sitting back, low-key judging everyone for what they're saying, and then suddenly, suddenly someone turns to you and says, what do you think? And you're like, oh, that's the worst. I don't want to answer this. And so you basically bluff your way through so that no one can work out what you really think so that no one can pin you down and judge you for it. John, John's doing the opposite to that. People come to John and say, who are you? And he says, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. He's being emphatic. He's saying, listen, the thing you need to know about me is this. I am not the Messiah. Don't look at me. Don't give me attention that I don't deserve. Don't put your hope in me. I'm not the saviour. 
If you trust in me, it will only be a dead end. I am not the Messiah, John says. Verse 21, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. This is significant because the very last words, the very last prophecy in the Old Testament, Malachi 4 says this, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Malachi is prophesying the arrival of an Elijah-like figure and the Jews were desperate for him to come because when he arrived, it meant that God was going to come and rescue his people in judgment. Are you Elijah, John? They said. Now here's the thing. John could have said yes and the crowds would have given him all the adoration he wanted. If John had just said, yes, I am Elijah, they'd have gone wild. They'd have loved it. It was like in 1995, Alan Shearer decided to sign for Newcastle United rather than Manchester United. It was massive news in the North East. He turned up outside St James's Park and Geordie's, it was cold, but they're just in shorts and T-shirts because they're hard. Crazy. They were going mad celebrating the return of their hero to St. James's Park. That is what could have happened if John had said, yes, I am Elijah. It's, it's really ironic, actually, when you read this, because John says he wasn't Elijah, and yet if you read in the Gospels, in Matthew 11, verse 14, this is Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. He says, if you are willing to accept it, he, that is John, is the Elijah who was to come. John, are you John the Baptist? Are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not. And yet he is. So what on earth is going on here? Well, I think two things. Firstly, John is just trying to deflect attention from himself. Even if he was Elijah, that was so insignificant in comparison to who was coming after him. And that's what John wanted to focus on. They were pushing him and pushing him to become this Elijah-like figure. And John was saying, I'm small beans in comparison to the one who is to come. But here's another thing that I think might be going on. It's possible that John didn't detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus himself did. John was so humble that he didn't realise who in Christ he was. And that can actually be the case for us. Jesus sees more of us than we see of ourselves. As we wrestle with pride or insecurity or anxiety or worries about who we are, remember this. It is far more important what Jesus thinks of you than how you define yourself. You can take your insecurities, you can take your pride to Jesus and let him redefine who you are. It didn't matter that John said he wasn't Elijah, Jesus did. It doesn't matter if you feel weak and insignificant. If Jesus calls you his beloved child, that carries more weight than what you say to yourself. He's not the Messiah. He says he's not Elijah. They then say again in verse 21, are you the prophet? John answered, no. 
Notice it's not just a prophet, but the prophets. The religious leaders were thinking of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, when there would be a prophet like Moses. Again, John says, I'm not, because you'll know by now, John's whole raison d'etre was to promote Jesus. He's saying, I'm not. Don't look at me. There is a prophet like Moses, and he's coming, and you cannot wait for him to come. You see, the way John operated in his ministry was this. I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. John teaches us an important lesson. If you're a Christian, your calling this evening is to think less of yourself, to think less about yourself and more and more about Jesus. The way up in the kingdom of heaven is always down. And John shows us that perfectly. I, I came across these words this week or last week uh, from James Denny and they are pretty scary for someone involved in Christian ministry. Let me read them to you. In preaching, you cannot produce at the same time the impression that you are clever and that Christ is wonderful. That's a pretty humbling quote to reflect on. You cannot produce at the same time the impression that you are clever and that Christ is wonderful. Can I say I'm really sorry if my attempts to appear clever have made you leave this place not thinking that Jesus is beautiful beyond comparison. John is a real lesson to us this evening. We'll see next week. He was willing, in fact, he was delighted that some of his disciples left him in order that they might be Jesus' disciples. And yet in Christian ministry today, we cling on to our own little kingdoms, more concerned with our own comfort and safety than Jesus' honour and glory. John is a model for us. We live in a world that screams self-sufficiency. You can do anything or be anything if you put your minds to it. And John just says, I'm not. I'm not. He was content and secure in that. John, who are you? I am not three times. He says it four times, but we'll imagine that he says, I am. You could say the final one is, I am unworthy. So, I am not three times. John then says, I am three times. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, verse 23, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. How did John define himself? Simply as a road sign, pointing the way to Jesus. We came down from Newcastle this morning and that relief when you finally see Oxford signposted on the motorway when you've just been driving for hours and hours and hours. But John says, that's all I am. That moment of relief when you realise that someone better is coming. John is such a wonderful model of that to us. Notice what he goes on to do in verse 24. The Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why, do, why then do you baptise if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. 
They come to John and say, why are you baptising? A great opportunity for him to promote himself. Let me tell you about my baptisms, how many people I've baptised and give you the, the figures and statistics. And John says, no, I'm baptising, but let me tell you about someone else. Let me tell you about someone better than me. So unlike us, isn't he? You know those situations where you're just desperate for someone to ask you about yourself so that you can have your two or three minutes in the limelight. I've got so many stories to tell about myself. But John is a lesson to us, a lesson in humility. He is so captivated by Jesus, as we'll see, that all he wants is for people to see him and not himself. John goes on to say, in fact, the ultimate sign of humility, verse 27. John says, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. You see, in those days, disciples of teachers were in some senses like PAs for their teachers. They, they went about and made sure that everything ran in order. You see it in the Gospels. The disciples head into the towns and villages before Jesus to make dinner reservations, to make sure that they've got somewhere to sleep, to make sure that everything was sorted out. But there's one thing a disciple wouldn't do. It distinguished a, dis- a disciple from a slave. You wouldn't stoop down and take off the shoes of your master. That was beneath disciples. And John says, I'm not worthy to do that. Because John knew that he was called to be amongst those people as a servant. Peter and Ken and Andrew and me and others employed by the church, we are amongst you to serve, to stoop down and to serve because we want to serve Jesus. John was a model of it. So was the lady who's on your sheets there, an absolute hero of the Christian faith. Amy Carmichael was from Northern Ireland. All the best people are. She spent 55 years of her life as a missionary in India. She never returned home on furlough. She gave herself to spreading the gospel there. Now, in those days, people would go to India as part of, the, part of the empire. And actually, being a missionary there was great. You lived a life of luxury. You lived with servants caring for you. And Amy went and said, no, I'm going to live with an Indian family. She never participated in the colonial attitude. She was amongst the people there to serve so that she might point people away from herself and to Jesus. So how do you define yourself this evening? Has John convicted your heart to think less of yourself and to think more of Jesus? And here's why. Let's look at what John says about Jesus. Let's look at what John discovered about Jesus that so transformed him that he became so humble. Verse 30, this is what John says. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. See, for 400 years, the prophetic voice had been silent. God hadn't been speaking. And then, boom, Jesus arrives, and it seems wonderful. But before we move on, you might be thinking, what on earth is John on about? After me comes someone who surpassed me because he was before me. Things that come after can't also be before. After the service, I hope... I'm going to have some pizza. It just doesn't even work. It just doesn't make sense, does it? After something, can't have been there before. 
And yet John says that's true of Jesus because he's altogether wonderful. He's altogether different. Jesus came into time and space and yet he was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He occupied a real corner of history and yet he was the Ancient of Days. He lived under the stars and yet he flung them into space. No wonder Jesus divides history. No wonder after John came one who was before him, the Ancient of Days. And John gives us three reasons why Jesus divides history. Firstly, Jesus is the sin bearer. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John sees Jesus and he sees in Jesus the fulfillment of all the Old Testament typology and promises. Jesus is the Lamb provided in the place of Isaac, dying so that we might live. He's the Passover lamb, rescuing us from judgment and delivering us from slavery. He was like the sacrificial lambs in the book of Leviticus, without blemish. Jesus was perfect in every way. Where you have failed, he never does. Where you feel unclean, he is always clean. He is the perfect lamb of God who washes away our sins. He's the lamb of the sacrificial system that died instead of the worshipper. He's the one from Isaiah 53, pierced for our transgressions. Though we are like sheep that have wandered away from God, God has laid on him the sin of us all. He's the lamb. He's like the peace offering of Leviticus 3, a remarkable offering where the Israelites offered a sacrificial offering, and then they shared in the proceeds. They shared in the offering itself. They ate it. You see, all of those people who lived around Israel at the time, the way they thought of sacrifices were were as meals for the gods. And Leviticus says it's the other way around. These sacrificial uh, lambs are meals provided by God for you. We feast with him because he has done everything for us. The American theologian Fleming Rutledge has written a great book on the crucifixion of Jesus. This is what she says in one of her chapters. God did not change his mind about us on account of the cross or on any other count. He did not need to have his mind changed. He was never opposed to us. It was not his opposition to us, but our opposition to him that had to be overcome. And the only way it could be overcome was from God's side, by God's initiative, from inside human flesh, the human flesh of the Son. John looks at Jesus and he says, everything that we have been lacking as a people is found in him. Every time that we have failed, every way in which we have failed, the solution is found in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Everything we need is found abundantly in Jesus. You need do nothing to know God. He has done it all for you. Jesus is the sin bearer. John secondly says Jesus is the spirit giver. Verse 32, then John gave this testimony. 
I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on me, remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's recounting what he saw happen when he baptized Jesus. The heavens opened and the Spirit came down as a dove. But in these verses, John is interested in what it means for us. He says, Jesus has come to be the Spirit giver. He has come to baptise us with the Holy Spirit. It's a baptism where God does all the work. A baptism accompanied with power. You see, for John in John chapter 1, the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are two sides of the same coin. If you have put your trust in Jesus this evening, you have everything you need. You don't need a new experience or a new power. You already have that power. Jesus has baptised you in the Holy Spirit. And now overflowing with the Spirit, you can live the Christian life. Not because you look inside yourself and see something remarkable, but because you have Jesus empowering you by his Spirit. You see, Christians aren't given an abstract package of blessing that we kind of unwrap. God gives us himself. If you're a Christian this evening, God is living in you. And if he's living in you, nothing can separate you from him. I suspect for some of us, it feels like the Christian life is impossible. How can I keep on going when I'm oppressed on every side? And we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me, because he is. Jesus has given you everything you need to live for him. You can live for him. And notice when Jesus was baptised, the Holy Spirit came as a dove. It drives you back to the time of the flood. The, The dove was sent out and came back to show that there was a new beginning on earth. Noah and his family could leave the ark and there was a new beginning. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you are baptised in the Holy Spirit and you have a new beginning. No matter what mess you've made of your life, Jesus is the God of new beginnings, of fresh, fresh starts. He remembers your sins no more and empowers you to live for him tomorrow. Jesus is the sin bearer. He's the spirit giver. And very briefly, Jesus is the son. Verse 34 says, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. Other translations say this is the son of God. John's saying, how do we know that he can be the sin bearer and he can be the spirit giver? Because of who he is. He is all we could ever need. He's not just a bigger and better version of me or of John or of someone else. He is altogether other than us. One of the old hymns says this, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin, but Jesus was good enough. He is enough. He is God's son. We can rest all that we are on all that he is, and he has shoulders broad enough 
to carry us. As we finish this evening, just notice this. This remarkable Jesus, who, who John is so obsessed with, all he wants to do is talk about him. This remarkable Jesus isn't scary or distant and far from us. The saviour of the world has come into the, into the world. What would we expect him to look like? A lion? John sees a lamb. As he flies into this earth, do, do you not think he would be an eagle? Remarkable, John sees a dove. Jesus is so gentle. He's so kind. He's so patient. No wonder John was obsessed with him. No wonder John could do nothing but talk about him. Because not only did he see Jesus in his glory, he experienced Jesus in his intimacy. He knew that in Jesus he had everything he needed. And he knew that Jesus was willing to give him all that he wanted. We so often think that we have to be something we're not to come to Jesus. Jesus can take us as we are. Jesus can take you as you are and he can make you into so much more than you could on your own. He's the sin-bearing, spirit-giving son of God and he came for you if you had put your trust in him. Let's pray.